panic, just some thoughts. My emotions about this are all over the place at the moment. That's Sharon Davis, a journalist in Sydney, Australia. I kind of go from feeling like I'm caught up in some sort of crazy catch-me-if-you-can game that has me as the person who's being played with. I'm Nicolene Greer and I'm in Dublin. Sharon and I have been working together on a story that is playing out in both our countries, Ireland and Australia. I don't really know where it's going and where I'm going in it. Because of the time difference, we often communicate by voice message. I'm not surprised you're feeling like this. And the fact that she's not long out of prison, it just makes it a bit more disconcerting. It's hard to know what's real and what's not real. But I suppose that is the world that she creates. Listen, mind yourself and talk to you soon. We were never meant to be in this story, but somehow we have become part of it. We just seem to be at the end of a fishing line and she kind of dangles the hook into the water and tries to tantalise us with the bait, but then pulls the fishing rod out of the water again. The person at the centre of this is elusive. She's been hiding from everyone, including possibly herself. She's finding new and creative ways to make people do things and make people believe things. She's harmed many people, including children, betraying their trust and leaving them deeply traumatised. It's going to take us across three continents and down the strangest of rabbit holes. When you're starting to deal with false birth certificates, you're dealing with United States Homeland Security. They're thinking terrorists. That's what they're thinking. But it always comes back to one individual. That showed you the level and sophistication and how clever she was. She was a living question mark. So the, the intention was just to find out who she is. We've been trying to do just that. Find out who she really is and why she does what she does. And can anybody really help her? One of the first things she said to me when we spoke was, oh, I'm so relieved you're a real person. From RTE Documentary and One, this is Finding Samantha. I don't need to be saved. I need to be found. Episode One, GPO Girl. Let's begin here in Ireland in 2013 with a press conference at Garda headquarters. The Irish police need help from the public. On Thursday the 10th of October at approximately 4.15pm, members of Angarda Shikana discovered a young female on O'Connell Street in a distressed state. They were trying to solve a mystery. She is described as being 5 foot 6 in height, slim build and having long blonde hair. A vulnerable young girl found alone and unable to speak on the streets of Dublin. Do you recognise this girl? Did you pass her in a distressed state in the city centre? Any information is vital to this investigation. It's one month before that press conference in 2013. We're at a children's hospital in Dublin. Okay, my name is Sue. This is Sue Highland. One Thursday in October, she got a call from her sister. Her nephew wasn't well. So they took him to the Children's Hospital, Temple Street, close to the centre of Dublin City. 
the two of us went down then and did the long sitting wait in Temple Street. It was dark out when we went into the hospital. As with most emergency departments, there's often a long bit of hanging around a room full of sick people, small children in this case, waiting for a bed to come free. It can be horrendous at times. It can be very stressful. We were brought straight through and then we were just put into like a cubicle over beside the toilet. Around the same time, Sue, her sister and her nephew were going into the children's hospital. The Gardaí were dealing with an incident on O'Connell Street, the bustling wide street in the middle of Dublin. They were near the GPO, the general post office, when their eyes were drawn to an unusual individual. A girl behaving strangely. They observed the girl. She looked to them distressed and and seemed to be crying. This is Detective Superintendent Dave Gallagher. She acted in a distressed manner, and I suppose it's the role of a police officer to spot things out of the usual, and it was out of the usual for them. So they asked what was wrong. Could they help her? What was going on? But the girl didn't, wouldn't, or couldn't speak. She was non-verbal. She had no identification on her. She had no money, no luggage, no bag. So a bit of a mystery, but nothing too untoward at that particular time. They just became concerned. She made some hand gestures indicating she may be in pain around her stomach, believing that she was a, a vulnerable young person. The fact that she was appearing in a distressed state, wasn't speaking, they would have invoked the Child Care Act and taken her into, into custody for her own well-being and safety until she could be reunited with her family and her parents or her guardians. Meanwhile, up in Temple Street Children's Hospital, Sue and her sister and nephew were settling into their cubicle in the emergency department. Then there was somebody brought into the next cubicle. We kind of noticed there was a guard presence and I was thinking, right, well, obviously there's something going on here. And they pulled the curtain around, but we could hear, like, them trying to ask questions. In the next cubicle was the girl who had been found earlier on O'Connell Street. So at the beginning it was, she won't speak. We kind of heard disorientated at the GPO and we were kind of going, oh God, the poor child. There was two guards in there and then the detective and a female, they were asking her a lot more questions than the first people that were with her. The guardie who found her had brought her to a local police station, but they quickly realised the best place for her to be checked out was at the children's hospital. That's where Detective Superintendent Dave Gallagher first met this mysterious girl. What I saw was a a young female, anywhere in my view from 14 to 18, 19. She was examined for health concerns and that. She seemed to be in, in good health, albeit a little tin for her age, a little bit emaciated. She had braces, so at some point she's got some orthodontic work done. Welfare was at the forefront of what we were trying to achieve. Identify, reunited with her family or her guardians. And then if there was a crime then, um, to investigate that then as well. In some ways, there was nothing that unusual about her. But the way that she was behaving had people worried. She appeared pleasant, but didn't communicate, didn't want to speak, no eye contact. She kept the hair down over her face. In the next cubicle, Sue and her sister could overhear what was going on. 
I was kind of going, can you hear what's happening in there? And she, my sister was like, yes, yeah, stop. I could hear all the, the kind of the, the whispering chats from the guards. And what kind of questions were they asking? Um, how did you get here? Were you on a plane? Were you on a bus? And then I think they had um, some of the nurses who would have had different languages coming in. And I think they were trying to say stuff in their own language, whatever it was, to see if that was the case. Um, but they were getting nothing, nothing over at all. But yeah, they were asking her, has anything bad happened? But you didn't hear her voice at all? No, not at all. There was, it was absolute silence. As far as I remember, she nodded and the guard said, right, OK, so at least we know she's saying something kind of did happen to her. As the night went on, they, they kept asking her the, the questions over and over and over again. And then at one point, um, I think the female guard was going out for a cigarette and I think her eyes may have lit up or something because the guards turned around and said to her, do you smoke? I don't know whether she shook her head or something, but the guard was like, no, no. I remember the male guard walking out going, She's, she's very young to be smoking, isn't she? All evening, they were asking her questions. And they were, in fairness, they were bringing her in food and drinks and juice and, and they, she ate whatever she was given. So they were kind of thinking, oh, well, that's that's kind of good. I went out to go to the bathroom. So obviously we'd, I came out and turned right and she was in the room next to us and they had the cubicle open. But I just glanced in as you do and I said to my sister oh god she, she'd break her heart if you looked at her she looks like she hasn't eaten and she just looked cold and frail I, I remember just automatically thinking oh god my heart is breaking even looking at her like and I only saw a glimpse of her I can still remember how frail she looks then some kind of breakthrough no words but some clues in the form of pictures. She did uh, create some doodles on a, on a piece of paper. At this point, our ears kind of did prick up and we were kind of going, well, what's going on here? Like, you know, you don't expect this to happen sitting in Temple Street of an evening. I heard she drew something about a gun. An image of a, of a, of a gun, an image of a, of a cross, an image of an airplane. Some people formed the opinion that this was signs of criminality or human trafficking or, or such like. We didn't form that opinion. What we had was an unidentified female. And did it seem like she wanted to communicate? Like, was she giving the impression that she wanted to communicate or, and that was why she was drawing these pictures, but she just couldn't get the words out? Was that the, what she was putting across? It, it, it was hard to know. I suppose, you know, as I say, I tried to keep an open mind. I, I was somewhat, you know, unsure as to, as to, why she why she wouldn't speak, and also the fact that she covered her face, um, the fact she wouldn't engage with the doctors to try being examined. That that could also be a sign of somebody very traumatized, as somebody the victim of of a very very serious incident. So you can't determine why the person is acting this particular way at that particular time. The guards may have said something about sex trafficking or something like that. Straight away, I was like, "Did you hear that?" And my sister had heard it and I was like, oh my God, the poor child. Like, you know, and my heart automatically just broke straight away. I was like, the poor child has been brought into this country and she's just been abandoned on O'Connell Street. Like, what a place to be left. Over the next few days, the girl was put in a private hospital room. Because she wasn't talking, they had no way of knowing if she was a victim of human trafficking or some other crimes. 
she would recoil from any physical sort of interaction. So, I mean, you don't want to forcibly engage in that at that point because there, there may be a reason behind not willing to, to cooperate or, or that. So you have to be careful not to re-victimise people um, if they are a victim of a serious crime. With the concern that she might have been brought into the country by criminals, the room was guarded by police at all times. The fear was that this young girl was a victim of sexual exploitation. So a female liaison officer was assigned and a legal guardian was appointed to look after her interests. Sue Highland's nephew recovered and they all went home. But Sue couldn't shake off the feeling of unease she had after seeing this young girl at the hospital. We were there probably till about half eleven that night when I came home. My dad, he was only in from work. I said, Dad, wait and I'll tell you what's about to happen. Like, my heart is broken. Like, I want to go back down. And he said, Sue, they're not going to let you back down. And I was like, no, but I feel like I just want to go in and say to her, like, do you need underwear or do you need, like, pyjamas or anything like that? Because... She just looked like she needed to be cared for. I went to bed and I didn't sleep a wink. Not a wink. And I remember posting like a Facebook post, as you did back in the day, uh, about this poor child and she was sex trafficked into this country and like, God love her. And and this was a mad hour of the night, like, because I couldn't sleep. I could not get around my head. The authorities were pouring resources into looking after her and trying to figure out who she was and what had happened. But they needed to protect her, so they didn't release much information about her. But the story brought the subject of human trafficking and sexual exploitation into the spotlight. This week there were reports that a teenage girl was found wandering in a dazed state on O'Connell Street in Dublin. It draws attention to the issue of trafficking In particular, the concern of children being trafficked. It's a business which makes criminal gangs all over Europe around 25 billion euro each year. Denise Charlton is chief executive of the Immigrant Council. How big an issue is it at the moment? 50% of child trafficking victims were into the sex trade. So people are very concerned that traffickers and pimps are really getting a foothold and generating a lot of cash for organised crime. We don't know if that young girl was trafficked, but there are indications that she may have been. It is really highlighting the fact that kids are being raped and exploited in a sex trade for organised crime in Ireland. Was this girl one of those children? Was there someone else controlling her? A formal investigation was launched under Detective Superintendent Dave Gallagher. It was called Operation Shepherd. You interview people on the street, your CCTV trawl to see can we locate where she came from. We checked the recent deaths in, in Ireland as well to see maybe if there had been a parent had deceased and she was left unattended, so we, we checked that. It became a very extensive investigation. The guards set up an incident room staffed by about 15 detectives. They all became very involved. You know, you're looking out potentially for the, the, the welfare of, of a young female. So we all have families, we all have brothers, sisters, children. So people do get personally invested in it. And people are willing to go that extra above and beyond and work those long hours that, that we all worked those couple of weeks. So They began looking anywhere they could think of for clues. We checked hotels, B&Bs, guest houses, left luggage and storage facilities around the city centre then. We says, well, 
you know, maybe she had left in bags or left in coats in, in a place in, in town because she had no property with her. Couldn't find any of those. Then airport police and the Dublin Port Authority. We canvassed juvenile liaison officers nationwide, child protection units nationwide, social service youth workers nationwide, homeless services, public and private psychiatric units were canvassed. Internationally to Europol, boat manifests, plane manifests uh, were, were checked, some of them to see if we could identify anyone fitting that description. It was needle in a haystack stuff, really. All the while, this nameless girl sat in her room, watching TV, painting her nails and saying nothing. Weeks went by. Even though Sue Highland had only had a fleeting encounter with her, she couldn't get this girl out of her mind. I hadn't slept like for a good few nights after it was. I remember like every day I was saying to my dad, like, could I ring like Star Street Guard Station? And he said, but they're not going to give you any information. And I was like, I know, but what if I just said like I was there and I saw the child? Is she okay? And what's going to happen to her? Is she going to get put into foster care? Everyone was working around the clock to try to help her. And it was evoking an instinct to protect in Sue as well. And I was like, oh, dad, I'd really like to just come and like take her. And he was like, we don't have the room. Like, because at the time I was still living in my mum and dad's and there was no room. But I was like, she can have my room. (laughs) She can have my bed. Like it was really me up and it was really stressing me out. After four weeks of searching, the Gardaí were beginning to run out of options. Over the, the period of weeks, there was nothing coming from, from the girl that was going to assist us. This girl wasn't just sitting quietly in her own world. She was actively trying to hide her identity. The question was, what exactly was she trying to hide? She wouldn't allow fingerprints to be taken. So again, we, we actually obtained fingerprints off a place that she used to eat food from and circulated those and, and got no match. We'd done some forensic tests on the clothing and, and stuff that she was wearing for see if there's any evidence of any sexual assaults or anything like that. Again, negative. We were hitting the brick wall on, on, on all avenues. She wouldn't let her photograph be taken, but eventually they managed to take a grainy profile picture of her. In the photo, her blonde hair is pulled back in a bun. She looks straight ahead with a blank expression and a finger in her mouth. That photograph was taken with an element of subterfuge, as in while she was being brought from one room to another room, and, and it was the, the best quality photograph we, we could get at the time. That photograph was sent to Interpol. No match. Despite the modern policing trends and the, the interactions that they have with, with law enforcement across the globe. That's Stephen Breen, crime editor with the Irish Sun newspaper. No one could still identify this uh, young woman, and no one had come forward to identify her. What if the Guardian now released that photograph of this girl to the general public? A very unusual step in the investigation of a young, vulnerable person. The hope was when her photograph was published, someone will come forward, someone will know who she is, and someone, hopefully, at the time the guards were saying, her family will come forward and then um, tell the guards who she was. There's legal requirements there before you can publish photographs of children that have to be gone through. Her privacy is invaded there then, and, and if, if a person is a victim, the photograph is out there f- forever. Dave Gallagher says they had no choice but to apply to the High Court for permission to have the photo released to the general public. It was probably something that we were we were going to have to do um, if, if we couldn't identify her within a reasonable period of time. They needed 
at that time the High Court's permission to publicly identify this girl using the photograph that they took. It was the first time that I would have been aware of that sort of application, have to make one of those applications, and it's quite unusual. I personally don't know of, of many that would be made without consent. I think it was the, the 31st of October 2013 when the guards went to the High Court because they had exhausted every avenue and they brought the current status of their investigation at that time to the High Court. In advance of it, you know, we, we did make her aware that we were going to do this. She did become quite uncomfortable. You just knew that she wasn't happy with this, shaking her heads and uh, just sort of indicating as if to say no. This was now a big news story in Ireland. Who was this GPO girl, as the papers dubbed her? This possible victim of sex trafficking who hadn't said a word to anyone for weeks on end. Gardaí have asked the High Court to allow them to release a picture of a teenage girl found in the capital three weeks ago. Gardaí say they've exhausted every avenue in their attempt to identify her. They told the court today that more than 80 angles had been followed up to try to establish her identity. They believed criminal offences had been committed, but they had no way of knowing who the girl was and the only avenue left to them was to release a photograph. Permission was given and that press conference was organised at Garda headquarters. Do you recognise this girl? Do you have any interactions with her? Did you pass her in a distressed state in the city centre in and around the 10th of October 2013? Any information is vital to this investigation and to the welfare of the child. I thought it was such an unusual moment and something that I'd never seen before. Like the guards or any law enforcement agency, you know, very rarely would go to the media with a photograph of a child. Obviously, they, they do release photographs of kids who are missing, but they have their names, they have their identities, their backgrounds. No one knew who this girl was, so I found it very strange. If anybody's out here, do you know this child? Have you ever met this child? Have you engaged with this child? Or if you're the parent of this child, would ask you to come forward uh, to the dedicated line in Store Street uh, via the phone number or the email or the Garda Confidential line. There was a, a lot of calls came in in the first six-hour period. Calls from Cyprus, Canada, people who thought they'd seen her in Dublin or thought they'd seen her in various parts of Ireland. We had a call from Moldova. It, it actually went fairly worldwide. All of those early calls came to nothing. Then, a few hours later, they got a break. And this is where our Australian connection begins. When the Australian clocks caught up with, with Irish time, a number of police officers from, from Australia contacted us. So we started to get some definitive lines of inquiry there. The media is a powerful tool and a lot of people watch television and with the internet now and, and stuff like that. Some of the calls the police were getting were from Australia. And that's why we got in touch with Australian journalist Sharon Davis. There was a call from Western Australia, in particular from a police officer who thought that he knew of a similar case. And that hunch turned out to be right. The call that was to give the definitive answer came not from Australia, but from much nearer. After 2,000 hours of police work, and so much care and attention from many state agencies, all at a combined cost to Ireland of around €350,000. The identity of the mystery girl was finally revealed. We had some uh, contact in Ireland through the, the extended family that were living in Ireland who recognised the photograph and made contact through their local Garda station. And they got a name. 
Samantha. Samantha as a party. Samantha as a party. Samantha as a party. The true identity of this girl was going to be even stranger than anyone had initially thought. Her identity was a mystery until Irish police released a photograph overnight, and the Australian Federal Police have confirmed that they have now received a formal request for assistance from Irish authorities. She was not a vulnerable teenage victim of sex trafficking. She was an Australian woman who'd travelled to visit members of her family living in Ireland. The whole thing had been a bizarre charade and a serious violation of the instinct to protect someone whom everybody believed was a vulnerable young person. But her behaviour in Ireland was not the first time she had deceived people. Far from it, in fact. Samantha as a party has spent the last 16 years mostly pretending to be someone she's not. Over the last two years, our research into Samantha has taken us deep into a dark web where we've discovered more than 100 different aliases she's created. And behind each alias is a story and a victim. Then I saw an article about what happened with Samantha in Ireland and I was like, oh my gosh, it's Cody. Like, she's at it again. As police forces in Ireland, Australia, Canada and even the FBI try to figure out is Samantha a victim or a highly sophisticated international fraudster, we delve deeper into her past and her story to try to figure out just who this mystery woman is. Next time on Finding Samantha. There's a vulnerability to this person, you know, albeit she's not a vulnerable child, but there was definitely vulnerable adults. She used a stolen credit card taken in Australia to fly to Manchester to come to Ireland and that cost 13 grand. Anybody can be nice, anybody can act nice, but how could she then do some of the things she's done? She knew who she was targeting and she knew how to target them. She's really good at what she does. Finding Samantha is written, recorded and produced by Sharon Davis in Australia and Tim Desmond and me, Nicolene Greer in Ireland. Executive producer, Liam O'Brien. Soundtrack composed by Paddy O'Flynn. Sound engineer is Damien Chanel. If you have any information or tips on this story, email us, documentaries at rte.ie. For further information on the series, visit rte.ie forward slash Finding Samantha. Join us again for episode two, Webs of Deceit. I give up. I give up giving up. I am lost. I don't need to be saved. I need to be found. 